Okay. Do we have amplification, Maestro? I think we do. That's great. My name is Jerry McIntosh. I'm the mission pastor here at Jefferson Baptist. And it's uh, my privilege to speak with you this morning on the subject of God's um, counterintuitive principles, and specifically as it pertains to missions. Several years ago, I was attending a faculty meeting and had the um, occasion to hear a presentation on um, the um, birthday paradox or the pigeonhole principle. A pigeonhole principle is a concept, a mathematical concept that's expressed in this equation here. And it states that if there are 23 people in the room, that there's a 50% probability that two of them will have the same birthday, day and month, not year, assuming there are no uh, leap year birthdays and there are no twins. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, 23 people in the room, there's 365 days in a year. How's that possible? But this uh, PhD statistician uh, professed that it was true and that it was validated in experience. Somebody asked her, well, what happens if there are 50 people, if you double that, roughly, if there are 50 people in the room, she says if there are 50 people in the room, there's an 85% probability that two of them will have the same birthday, day and month, assuming no leap year birthdays and no twins. She says, I've made a lot of money on the pigeonhole paradox in, in pubs and in parties from people who are willing to bet against the pigeonhole paradox. I asked her, well, what happens if there are 75 people in the room? She says, if there's 70, not quite 75, if there's 70 people in the room, I would bet my house. Because there is a 99.9% .9 probability with 70 people in the room that two of them will have the same birthday, day and month, not year, assuming no leap year birthdays and no twins. <clears throat> Number one in your notes, counterintuitive principles are those principles that defy conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom. Counterintuitive principles usually begin with uh, phrases like, studies show, or everybody knows, or they say, and, and then the statement that uh, goes after that is intended to be conventional wisdom. There were 40 people in this room, and I have to tell you that uh, despite the fact that there were, um, that this PhD statistician said that this was true, there were a lot of skeptics. And so she said, well, Google it. Look for yourself, and you can find on Google the pigeonhole principle. But I will suggest to you that if you do, and several people have, have already told me about it, if you Google pigeonhole principle, you'll find uh, mathematical expressions like factorial operator and binomial coefficient and permutation. Concepts are way above my head. Um, <clears throat> but after looking at the analysis and discussing it in this group of 40 people, um, there were several people who said, well, maybe there's some truth to this, despite the fact that it's counterintuitive. But not everybody bought into it. Number two in your notes, counterintuitive principles can be validated by legitimate authority. Can be validated by legitimate authority. 
So there were several people unwilling to accept a testimony of this person. And so um, we decided maybe we should um, test it. There were 40 people in the room. Let's, let's see. Let's see how it works. And so she said, fine. And she started in the back corner. And she said, okay, what's your birthday, day and month, not year? And went all the way through 40 people. And we got to the end. There were not two people who had the same birthday. There were actually three in that room. Kind of went against the prevailing uh, wisdom. Number three in your notes, counterintuitive principles can be validated by experience. Can be validated by experience. Our, our life is full of counterintuitive principles. For example, flying is counterintuitive. I think of this whenever I get on the plane. Could you imagine approaching the Wright brothers in Kitty Hawk in 1903 and saying, do you realize that a day will come when there are machines weighing 375, or correction, 735,000 pounds that will be taking off in the United States and flying across the Atlantic Ocean, employing principles very similar to your invention here at Kitty Hawk in 1903. I suspect if you had told that to the Wright brothers, they'd have thought you were nuts. Doesn't make sense. Microwave ovens are counterintuitive. So are GPS devices and smartphones, television, space travel, personal computers. Most of these devices involve taking something tangible that we can sense with our five senses, like pictures and audio, and transmit them across intangible space where they're picked up and received. Again, somebody after the last service said, Finance. He's a financial advisor. He said the stock market is counterintuitive. And the people who tend to do well in the stock market are those who go against the herd. Life is counterintuitive. Number four in your notes, the Bible is full of counterintuitive principles. Consider, for example, leadership in Luke chapter 22, verse 25 and 26. Jesus declared, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who leads like the one who serves. Anyone who's worked with large organizations for any length of time will recognize the truth of this principle. People who tend to be given power tend to abuse it, tend to lord it over folks. And the servant leaders, like Jesus describes here, tend to be rare and they also tend to be exceptional. Life is counterintuitive. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Sacrificing my life to save it is counterintuitive. The last four items in that list, uh, murder and uh, adultery, vengeance and love, are all taken from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And that each of them begins with, you have heard that it has been said. And they conclude with, but I say. And Jesus presents a counterintuitive concept that was foreign to his hearers then, as it is today. The Bible is counterintuitive. So from now on, whenever you hear the phrase, you have heard that it has been said. In the scripture, you can say, oh, here comes a counterintuitive principle. Consider the uh, <clears throat> number five, and you notice most of the Old Testament heroes lived in a manner that was counterintuitive to the regular thinking, the conventional thinking of their day. Abraham was called by God in, in uh, Genesis chapter 22 
to take his son Isaac, his only son, the son of promise, the son born to him in an old age, the son through whom all the nations of the world should be blessed. He's told to take him up a mountain in Moriah and sacrifice him on an altar. Abraham had to be perplexed by that, had to think, what is God doing? We know the story. Uh, the angel of the Lord intervenes. Uh, a ram is furnished, and Abraham sacrifices. The whole point was to test God, uh, Abraham's love and faithfulness to God. Here's a suggestion that you might consider for meditation. Take an Old Testament hero, perhaps one listed in Hebrews 11, David or Daniel or Moses or Gideon or Esther or Ruth, and think upon their story and ask yourself two questions. Number one, what did they do that was counterintuitive to the thinking of their day? What did they do that went against the flow? And number two, what might I learn from their example? This would be a useful thing to consider as we live in a society where Christian, Christian faith itself is becoming increasingly contrary to the prevailing winds. Number six in your notes, many Christians struggle with applying biblical um, counterintuitive principles in their lives, particularly at the beginning when they're young in the faith. Questions like, can I really trust God that he will provide for me if I tithe? Can I, if I spend my time in corporate prayer, does it really matter? Does it make a difference to me or to anybody else? If I, is it possible to live a Christian life, a life of faith, in a skeptical world? The writer of Hebrews defines faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things, what? Not seen. Faith is defined by counterintuitive principles. If you knew the answers to those questions, if it were obvious, if you could read it in a magazine, it wouldn't be faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Number seven in your notes, the gospel of salvation is a counterintuitive principle of scripture. Number seven. Consider with me the conversation between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John the Baptist. It's recorded in Luke chapter seven, verse 22, where, and also, by the way, in Matthew 11. It begins with the disciples of John asking the disciples of, or asking Jesus through his disciples, so give it up already. Are you the Messiah that we've been looking for or should we wait for somebody else? And here is Jesus' response to those disciples. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Imagine with me um, that we're in middle school. Go back to middle school, and we're taking one of those discrimination tests. You remember what they are? They have a picture. Here's a banana, and here's a peach, and here's a pineapple, and here's a Buick. And we're asked to pick the one that doesn't fit. Remember that? So if you look at this list in Luke chapter 7, 
verse 22, you read the lame walking and leprosy clean, cleansed and deaf here and dead are raised. And the good news is there one of those that really doesn't fit with the others. The one that's, dist that's distinctive. Three weeks ago, I underwent surgery for a kidney stone. And uh, it was probably, a it was a very remarkable experience, principally because it hurts a lot. If you ever had a kidney stone, you appreciate that. Well, my wife uh, placed my experience on Facebook. And it was also listed in the prayer request here at the church. And I was gratified by the response I received from people at the church. You know, I'm praying for you. I hope you're doing well. But I have to tell you, I was astounded by the reaction I got from social media. Just the power of social media. Not only did I hear best wishes from people at church, I heard from people at the post office, and at Fred Meyer, and at the gas station. Hey, Jerry, I heard you had kidney stones. Hope you're doing all right. And as often as not, I would hear their kidney stone stories. I've heard enough kidney stone stories, I could write my own book on the subject. Now imagine that instead of kidney stones, I had been blind from birth, or that I had leprosy. And I was cured from that miraculously. And Sue puts that on Facebook. Do you suppose the reaction would have been different? Probably, it would have been more remarkable, a miracle. People would be coming to my house to see for themselves. You were blind and now you can see, that's amazing. I'd probably get my picture in the paper. Now imagine that Sue posts on Facebook, I woke up this morning and Jerry is dead. We called the cops, they called the coroner, the coroner came to my house, yeah, he's dead. And they called the funeral home. Be meanwhile, somebody calls Dee. Dee has told us in times past, if I come to visit you when you're sick, you're probably dead or dying. And so Dee comes to the house, he crosses the threshold to my house and Spontaneously, I spring back to life. And the cops, the coroner, Sue, everybody's there, they witness this. Sue puts that on Facebook. Now what do you suppose the reaction is? Not only in the paper, I'm gonna get television crews from Portland and Seattle who'll wanna, who wanna hear this story for themselves and talk to the coroner, and is this really true? And it'll be, a, it'll be something that I would talk about for the rest of my life. It would be astounding. Now, compare that to this note on Facebook. Jerry preached the gospel to some poor folks this morning. What do you suppose the reaction to that would be? Now, some of my more pious friends would probably send me a thumbs up, an emoji. But I suspect that most of the reaction would be, yeah, that's nice. Cricket, cricket, cricket. Not as, not as, as uh, dramatic or profound. And part of that is because we're used to it. In America especially, we're used to, we hear the gospel all the time. You can watch it on TV, you can read about it in a magazine or a book, you can push a button on the internet. Jesus lists preaching the gospel to the poor on an even level with all of the great miracles listed in that verse and establishing his credentials as the Messiah, 
but it doesn't seem to fit in the same list to contemporary Americans. Now, if you were alive in the, 19, the latter part of the 1970s, or if you're a student of history, you will be, this picture that we're going to put up here will be familiar to you. It's the story of Kim Fan T. She's also known as the Napalm Girl. The photo is taken after an airstrike by her own countrymen uh, of Napalm in a Buddhist temple in Vietnam. People were trying to find communist insurgents near this Buddhist temple. And she was in the temple, and so, uh, as were several of her family members, and her family members were killed by the blast. All of her clothes were burned off, and she received third-degree burns on her, all over the back. <clears throat> the picture was taken by a photojournalist and was published worldwide. It was published in every newspaper in Asia and in Europe and in America. It's credited, it won the Pulitzer Prize, and it was one of several photographs that was credited with, the, with ending the Vietnam War. This girl suffered great injury from which she is still recovering these four decades later. And add to that the humiliation of having her pain become a public spectacle, a kind of political cudgel that people use to make a point, a political point. Can you think of anyone among your friends who would have a greater right, a greater, uh, a, um, a more reasonable right to be angry and bitter at her country, at her enemies, at her God. This is a present picture of Miss Fan today. And at Christmas time, she published her testimony in the Wall Street Journal. I'd like to read just a section of it. On this Christmas Eve in 1982, I was attending a special worship service in a small church in Vietnam. The pastor delivered a message that many Christians would find familiar. Christmas is about the gift of Jesus Christ wrapped in human flesh and given to us by God. As the pastor spoke, I knew something was shifting inside of me. A decade removed from the defining tragedy of my life, I still desperately needed peace. I had so much hatred and bitterness in my heart. Yet I was ready for love and joy. I wanted to let go of my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of pursuing fantasies of death. So when the pastor finally finished speaking, I stood up in that sanctuary and I said yes to Jesus. Today, she says, my circumstances are still challenging. She's still uh, recuperating from the damage of that burn. But she says, my heart is 100% healed. I've been given the power to forgive those who have wronged me, no matter how severe those wrongs were. Notice this, I am inspired to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. I wonder, putting that Luke passage back up, I wonder if the napalm girl were here today and she were sitting with us in this sanctuary and she looked at that list. I wonder if she would consider proclaiming the good news to the poor to be any less significant, any less profound, any less miraculous than anything else on that list. I very much doubt it. I very much doubt it. Jesus posed this list to his disciples 
to the disciples of John as a means of establishing his credentials as Messiah. By extension, you and I, you and I, establish our credentials as disciples of Jesus Christ in the same way. In the same way, by preaching the gospel to the poor. Napalm Girl's miraculous story of redemption has been reproduced and replicated hundreds, if not thousands of times by the ministry of this church through missionary, the support of missionaries all around the world as exemplified in these flags that hang in this sanctuary. A message of hope to people living on subsistence, a subsistence life in the base of the Himalayan mountains in India. A message of freedom to young girls released from the bondage of prostitution in China. A message of freedom to, to, for children finding release from the tyranny of Islam in our schools in West Africa and the orphanage there. Having the gospel message penetrated to the farthest reach of Indonesia by airplane. Training Christian leaders to evangelize their own people in the darkest recesses of China. Through the meticulous translation of the Holy Scriptures into Wolof and Senegal and through the evangelism and church planning ministries in Central and South America, you could add others. People that you know whose marriage was saved through the, through the penetrating and miraculous gospel of Jesus Christ. People whose bitterness has been resolved, who's been released from addiction. People whose lives have been transformed through the message of the gospel of salvation. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that is Jefferson, in Judea, that is Lynn and Marion County, in Samaritan, in Samaria, that is Oregon, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Fortunately, JBC makes this possible in your life today. I, I, didn't, I was tempted to say easy, but it's not. Making a commitment to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ requires a commitment of a disciple. It requires sacrifice requires investment. Number eight in your notes, the threefold work of missions is pray, give, and go. Number A, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. Beginning tomorrow morning at five o'clock, as Dee mentioned earlier, till 10 and five, and five to 10 p.m., Monday through Friday this week. We have the privilege of praying for our missionaries we will pray that the laborers will be protected by the covering of God's Spirit. We can pray that the laborers will remain faithful to the teaching of God's Word, that the laborers will be encouraged with fruit from their efforts, that the laborers will be blessed by co-laborers who will join them in the work. You can have a part in this important work of preaching the gospel to the poor all over the world as a testimony to your own commitment as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number B, give. This is another counterintuitive principle because we tend to think of our money as a fixed pie. If I give away some, there'll be less for me. But in God's economy, God expands the pie. Malachi 3.10, bring, me, bring you the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat, that is, substance required for the work of ministry in God's house. And put me to the test. He said, try me. 
And see if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there will be not enough room to receive it. Number C, go. Pray, give, and go. A threefold work of missions. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. Not everyone has the ability to go. But if you can go, you should, at least once in your life. To see the work of God for yourself and to be an encouragement to those on the front lines of missions. Between JBC and our partners, we send between 10 and 12 teams, short-term teams every year. The prophet Isaiah said, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation. Next slide is our missions committee. If you have an interest in going on a short-term mission, talk with one of these folks, and we can give you specific detail about that. Bible teaches that many counterintuitive principles, and among them is the great miracle of preaching the gospel to the poor. I pray God's blessing on each of us as we contemplate his, uh, our work in that uh, mission and that ministry this week. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be a part, to be the hands and feet and the mouthpiece of your love for the people of the world, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We're grateful for the privilege that we have to be engaged in this work. And I just pray that even now that your spirit would be ministering to each of us and that we would give consideration to the work that we would have, that each of us would do in fulfilling this great commission. In Jesus' name, amen.